Midlands Today on Midlands 183 with O'Brien's Mullingar. It's official Westmeath. No county loves Renault more. P.O.Brien.ie When people in the Midlands want to talk, they talk to Will Faulkner. Well, good morning. Happy Friday. And where is the storm? Has it arrived where you are yet? Because it ain't here. Put it this way. If Eunice was paid to be a storm, she'd be fired so far. Let's hope this is how it continues. Now, coming up today, why one four-year-old is only half the weight of her twin. The murder trial of a leash man comes to a hung jury. And your chance to win a fantastic night out in Mullingar next month Time to laugh, time to kick back and relax with the three Hail Marys. So, how do you win? You get involved. You call 0818 300 103. You text 083 30 10 103, powered by Lamb Brothers Toyota in Tullamore. And if there's anything on your mind today, do not be shy. So, front page of the Irish Times, big picture of a wave breaking in Derry. Now, I'm not sure, was this Dudley or was it Eunice? But either way, in some parts of the country, it is quite hairy this morning. Not so much here in the Midlands yet, or at least not reported to us yet. But there are gusts predicted of 130 kilometres per hour in the south of the country. That's what, that's about 80 miles an hour in old money. And according to forecaster Matthew Martin, conditions will deteriorate as the morning goes on. And there are many schools in the west of Ireland, and even in counties such as Roscommon, which have been closed today. Now, on the international stage, Russia is still taking all the headlines, and really they're not changing very much. The position from the White House in Washington, Joe Biden, says Russia may stage a violent event to justify an invasion of Ukraine whether it is a drone strike or a fake terrorist bombing or even a chemical attack, and that would be the false flag upon which they would go in. Meanwhile, Russia denies this. It says it's ready to discuss security measures in Europe, including limits on missile deployments, and they deny that they're going to invade Ukraine uh, in the meantime, by the way, they have expelled the U.S. Deputy Chief of Mission in Moscow. So the diplomatic tactics continue. Now, back home, and you probably won't be sorry to see the end of NEFET, the National Public Health Emergency Team. No disrespect to the individuals involved. It's been a long two years, and naturally fatigue kicks in. And while in the beginning, I think... There was reasonable support for what they were doing. As time went on, more and more of their decisions were questioned. The five-euro meal, for instance. The retailers who couldn't sell children's shoes. And we all remember the decisions that just didn't add up. But nonetheless, they've done us some service. And Dr. Tony Hullahan, who leads NEFET, and he's the chief medical officer, he sent a letter to the Minister for Health yesterday recommending they be stood down. It was a long two years indeed. Also, they have advised government that mask wearing should no longer be compulsory in various indoor settings, including shops, 
and schools and public transport. Now, that's not officially yet. The requirement, if government approves, uh, Woody's on Monday week. So don't just rip off the mask just yet. And there are many, as we heard yesterday, who will continue to wear their masks out of a sense of protecting themselves, but also a duty to other people. To each their own, in this case, personal choice. Now, if you're a driver over the age of 70, until next Monday, you would have had to get a medical report to confirm you are still fit to get behind the wheel of a car. But from next Monday, that age limit is increasing to 75, which in some way is a reflection of the fact that, yes, we are living longer and generally we tend to be healthier even into later life, but also, because of the COVID pandemic, there were quite a few temporary extensions already given to people over the age of 70, for whom it wouldn't have been wise to take a trip into the doctor simply to have a form filled out. So 75 will be the new limit for getting your medical fitness cert, and that takes effect from next Monday. Read more in the Irish Examiner today. Now, a little bit of a political spat in the Midlands, in Leash Offaly in particular. Green Party Minister Pippa Hackett was speaking in the Shannad, and she was talking about part-time farmers. And again, maybe some of this is taken out of context, but I'll give you the quotes as they appear in the Irish Independent today. She says, Some of the best farmers I know are part-time, yet the term hobby farmer is bandied about in relation to part-time farmers like some sort of an insult. And the paper says the comments have led to a backlash from politicians and from farmers' groups who accuse Minister Hackett of celebrating the demise of farming as a full-time occupation. And one of those reacting is former Fine Gael Minister Charlie Flanagan, who is a TD in Leash Offaly, and he says he fears the government would like to follow the UK model of hobby and part-time farming, and he doesn't subscribe to that view. A thriving agriculture industry is vital for rural Ireland, and this must continue, and thousands of full-time farm families across the land must be protected and supported. Remarks echoed by the IFA president, Tim Cullinan, who says Ms. Haggett's, uh, Ms. Hackett's comments reveal the green agenda, which is to destroy farmer viability. Now, we are listening back to the full audio from the Shannad, from her contribution. We'll bring it to you a little later, in the interest of fairness, so you hear the full context of what was said. But that story in the Irish Independent today. Along with an unusual bit of gossip, really, and scandal from a prison where a female prison officer is accused of having an inappropriate relationship with an inmate who happens to be a very senior and a very dangerous gangland criminal. Now, this lady is in her 30s, and she was on holidays with a female colleague, and that colleague happened to discover while on holidays that this uh, relationship had blossomed, and she obviously blew the whistle on it, and she received a threatening phone call from within the prison's walls, and uh, bearing in mind phones are not supposed to be in there. The cell of this individual was searched. They found a phone. 
They also found pornography on his laptop. He has a laptop because he's studying for college. And there's no way, they say, that pornography could have gotten on the laptop unless it was brought in on a USB stick for him. So, a huge investigation underway. But in the heel of the hunt, the female prison officer at the centre of this alleged inappropriate relationship, she has resigned from her position, so says the Irish Independent today. That means, by the way, the prison service can't question her. However, the Gore seem to be taking an interest in the matter. Now, a final one for you, and this is obviously a delicate situation, but there's a modern moral in the Irish Independent. It's an agony aunt section, and the writer sends in the following question. It says, My daughter lives abroad, and because of lockdown, I haven't seen her all that much over the last two years. And she recently came to visit with her children, and I had the most awful shock when I saw her. She must have put on three or maybe even four stone, and she looks extremely unhealthy. Now, I made subtle references to her weight during her trip, but I'm not sure if she picked up on them. I'm not even sure if she realises how much weight uh, she has put on. And we have a family history of obesity and cardiovascular disease, so I am very concerned for her health. I am thinking of saying it to her directly and perhaps paying for her to see a dietitian. But her father says it's not my place to police her body and her sister has sent me on an article on fat shaming. What should I do? So the answer that comes back, and to be fair to the Independent, they have consulted with a lot of different experts, but the feeling seems to come across that it shouldn't be said to her that weight stigma can lead to poorer health behaviour and impact physical health, that it is very much tied into self-worth, that it is obviously a sensitive subject, and, and so on and so forth. Nobody seems to recommend coming out with it directly. Nobody suggests how the conversation should be broached. And while I absolutely understand the sensitivity of it, and I know only too well, as I'm sure you do too, if you're this mum, you probably won't sleep at night looking the other way and ignoring it. You feel you have to say something. It's your own flesh and blood, your own daughter. You want to see her being healthy, especially if there's a family history of heart disease. So what do you do in this situation? Over to you on 0818 300 103. But I think something has to be said in the right way, of course. What is the right way? <laughs> now, that'll get your brain working at. <laughs> Here's a heck of an expression. Thank you to the listener who sent it in. Eunice is just shifting her arse in here in the very south of County Leash. So I, I reckon there's some wind coming out of that nether region since it's obviously getting stormy. Uh, a caller from Port Leash also saying, you'd better get ready if you're listening further north. Eunice is most certainly arriving with a bang. Now, message from Hilda. Let me see, she says. Russia has been sitting on the border for five weeks. Historically, not typically how one runs an invasion to sit there for five weeks. Well, and the news has been priming us for the last three weeks to wait and see 
how Russia will create an incident. But all of a sudden, NATO has assembled in Munich. If there is an incident now, how do we know it wasn't created by NATO? Yes, it's all very cat-and-mouse game of chess. Hard to figure out, quite frankly. Anyway, we will be back to that when there is an update. It's not really on the agenda this morning. I think you've heard enough about Russia and Ukraine. Let's move on to something a little bit different. Have a listen to these two little cuties, and in a moment I'll tell you why one of them is only half the weight of the other. I'm going to the race party for Club of Turkey and Club. Hi, I'm Ellie, and, and I'm five years old, and I want to raise money for the Botany Bear. Now, let's find out exactly what is going on here and say good morning to their mum, Alison Doyle from Clarine. Alison, how are you? Hi, Will. How are you? I'm good. And yourself? Great, thank you. Great, thank you. Tell us about, um, well, Mia, first of all, and also Ellie. Yeah. Um, well, Mia and Ellie are, are two best little girls you could ever meet. Um, they're five and a half years old now, and... Um, Mia, I suppose, uh, was just born with a little problem with her bowel, really, um, and she was she's been quite sick up and down, and um, we've had a lot of hospital stays and different things, and she's been quite unwell at times. Um, and I suppose it was just a matter of going between different doctors and really trying to find out what the problem was. Um, Ellie, thank God, never really had any issues. And Mia was well in every other way, just that she has a problem with her bowel. Um, so the doctors finally came to a decision there just before Christmas that she would need to have a stoma put in. What does that mean, So it means basically that Mia has suffered with chronic constipation really her whole life to the fact of where she wouldn't be able to eat. She could go for five or six days without eating. She could go for 10 or 12 days sometimes 15 without actually being able to go to the toilet. Her oh, stomach goodness. would swell out to capacity. Um, it's where she was going to burst the signs. That and sounds incredibly painful. Very bad, yeah, very bad. Yeah, she wouldn't be able to, like, pass wind or she wouldn't be able to burp or just really uncomfortable pretty much all the time. Um, so what's the so solution? How does the stoma help her? So the idea was that, first of all, when we went up in October up to Crumlin, um, the surgeon had made a decision that she would need an ileostomy, which would be a bag that she would need to help her go to the bathroom. Um, and they wanted to put, um, essentially that was, they would bypass her large intestine, use her small bowel and kind of create, it doesn't sound very nice now, but they'd pull it to the outside of her skin, basically and leave this little, like a stub of her small bowel on the outside of her stomach so that she could go to the toilet. So we had to go off and kind of find out as much information as possible about that. But when we went back up in December, we met a different surgeon who said that they would like to try this A-stoma, which essentially is, it's still a stoma, um, so, but instead of having a bag, she would still be able to go herself, just that I would give her medicine through a tube that's in her tummy. So this time they used her appendix. So they kind of brought her appendix up to the outside of her tummy, basically, um, right. and created a little funnel so that a tube goes in directly into her bowel. 
and then I have to um, make up a kind of solution of salt and water and enemas and attach it to the tube so that she can go to the toilet herself. So, so in effect, the solution that you put in yes. replaces what should be in there naturally? Yeah, because what they're... Well, see, the, the problem is is that they don't really know enough about it. And I don't know, for me as a mother, it was so frustrating and isolating because I'd never heard of this. And any time I went to the doctor, they didn't really know what I was talking about. They couldn't understand what was happening. And they were just going, well, I don't know. We don't know enough about it. Go to a different doctor, go to a different hospital. It's just constipation. She'll grow out of it. But she wasn't growing out of it. And last year when we went up to Crumlin, we, we were with the, the the specialist up there. And he was kind of looking after us. He was doing a lot of different medicines and different things. And this year when we went up, they weighed her and compared it to the last year. And she had gained no weight in a year. Um, so she didn't lose anything, which was great, but she's not gaining mm-hmm. anything. And her height has suffered. She's like, um, me is about two stone, a little under two and a half stone, and Ellie is four and a half stone. Um, and keep in mind, so they they're just, both five. They're so both five. Both four and a half is, is what you'd expect. Yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly what you'd expect. So me is underweight for her age. Um, and she just wasn't thriving and they were worried, as I was, about her failure to thrive. They just said they couldn't take the chance that she may or may not grow out of it and that they wanted to have to do an intervention, basically, because she just wasn't going to grow and she wasn't going to thrive. Um, so so yeah, how has so she, she been was, since the surgery, Alison? So, thank God the surgery went really well and she was doing great and we got home... Um, about two weeks ago, actually two weeks ago today was the surgery. Yeah, sorry, two weeks ago today. So we're home about a week and a half. She was doing brilliant. We actually started to go back to school on Monday. We let her in because she wanted to go in for an hour or two. Unfortunately, she got an infection and we had to go back to Crumlin. Um, oh, no. But no, it was fine. It's it's unfortunately one of those things. It's an, like it's like an open wound or an open cut. You know, if you get it on your hand or your knee, unfortunately, it's on her tummy. And because it's part of the bowel, it's more prone to infection. So we kind of knew it was going to happen. But look, they're brilliant up there. We just got an antibiotic and something through a drip and everything. And we got home. So she's home. She's a bit sore. She's a bit tired. But she's she's great. I don't know. Kids are amazing. She's she's unreal. She's mad to go back to school. And she just wants to um, get back to normal and... Um, get back playing with her friends and stuff like that. She has one more um, procedure to do because what's in at the moment is just a temporary tube. So she has to go back next month and have the permanent tube fitted. Um, And it's called a button. Um, So basically she won't have a tube hanging out of her tummy then. It'll just literally look like a button, like puts on your coat or your jacket. That again, we just open up and then attach something to just for the medicine. So it'll be kind of more aesthetically pleasing, I suppose, than what's on at the minute. Mm-hmm. Um, well, but fingers she's, crossed. She's and it, it, it's fantastic crossed, to yeah. hear that she is making such great progress. And that brings us to the purpose of why you're sharing the story. Yeah. Tell me yeah. about Popsy Bear. Popsy Bear. Um, well, I suppose when we were um, initially trying to find out information as to what this was, first of all, the ileostomy and then the um, button stoma, as it's called. We didn't know anything about it. I was trying to find out information. I was trying to explain it, as, as was my husband, to Mia to let her know what it was. And it's very hard for a child to interpret a picture to know 
what she's going to look like or what it's going to be. And we found um, a charity that's set up in Scotland, um, this lady who set up a charity about 20 years ago for her own daughter um, who needed a stoma and there was nobody to help them as to what it would look like. So she actually makes bears with their own stoma um, to look exactly like what the child is going to have. And she donates them to any child anywhere that wants a stoma. Um, so this lady sent out a bear for Mia with her own button stoma on it um, and just delivered it with a little note and the bear gets a little certificate and you can name him. And she sent a bear for Ellie, just a normal bear, just to include her as well. Um, but she's amazing and there's people trying to fundraise for them because every bear costs £30 to make and she donates them to any child who needs them. And she's just brought out a book as well called A Friend Like Me just for kids to understand what's happening. Mm. It's very hard for a five-year-old to, to know what, what's mm. going to happen to them or what it's going to look like or, you know. Um, so Mia was absolutely over the moon to get this because we could then show it to her and explain what it was going to look like. And then she in turn was able to tell Ellie, well, this is what I'm getting on some of her friends in school, but this is what I'm going to have. And she wasn't so worried or nervous or scared about it. And that's a big thing for a mother, that your child is not nervous or of scared course, or un, unsettled. Um, and when she got that, she thought this was the best idea ever. And when we went up to Crumlin, she was like, I wonder will all the boys and girls get a little bear? Like, I have a little bear, because that's brilliant. Um, and I said to her, yeah, I said, the lady donates them. I said, if she knows, I said, but we, we can send some money. And, and we made a private donation ourselves to the charity. Um, and then Mia was like, but if everybody got one, wouldn't that be brilliant? So then we kind of said, well, do you know what? If this child wants to do something to help and her sister got involved, and I said, you know what, we'll do it. And Crumlin were amazing. There's the best stoma nurses up there. They're absolutely brilliant. And we just said, you know what, we'll incorporate the two charities. And Mia and Ellie got behind them and she just wanted to. And they're telling everybody about it. They're telling everyone to donate and try yeah, and raise as much money as it's, possible. Isn't it such a wonderful focus, though, after such a difficult time? you know what it's taken her mind off it exactly mm. um and she just this is her focus now is trying to help other little boys and girls to have the same thing that if they have a stoma then they get a beer so they know what's happening so how could the rest of us help her then um so they have a gofundme page set or we have a gofundme page set up um i don't know if you can share it on your oh we will absolutely Facebook but what page. are we searching for uh so ellie and mia's ellie sorry mia and ellie's Stoma Journey is, is the name of the page. Mia and Ellie's Stoma Journey. No, you betcha. We'll share it. And there's a picture of the two of them as well. And, okay, Mia obviously Perfect. is a little bit lighter, but they're both bright yeah. as a button. And oh, we're yeah. more than delighted to support. And I hope for her recovery onwards and upwards, it sounds like she's making progress anyway. And hopefully the she permanent is. tube will go well. Exactly. Yeah, please God, please God. Alison, take care. Um, thanks so much for having us on and thanks to everybody who's donated so far. Everybody, we really appreciate it and it's going to do so much for the two charities. So thank you. Keep it up, Alison. Alison Doyle thanks. from Clarine, mum of Mia and Ellie. Now, still on the agenda today, the murder trial of a leash man is now at a hung jury. We'll give you the very latest after 10. When you are single, you are quite entitled to mingle. 
So can we agree that sexually transmitted diseases are nothing to be ashamed of? They are just a fact of life. And sometimes you will pick one up, in which case it is useful to have a clinic on your doorstep that you can attend. Well, students are being urged to avail of a new free sexual health centre here in the Midlands that is opening on the TUS campus, formerly Athlone Institute of Technology, and the project lead and nurse at TUS Midlands is Laura Tully. Laura, good morning. Good morning, how are you? Very well, thank you. Tell us what you will be offering at this new centre. Well, I'm delighted to announce that we've now received um, mainstream permanent annual recurring funding from the Department of Health and the HSE Sexual Health and Crisis Pregnancy Programme to offer a comprehensive uh, range of sexual health, contraception and health promotion services now on campus. This is a pioneering, groundbreaking um, model of care where you know, this, this specialised service is coming to campus to provide students with a range of um, you know, um, facilities like we've um, full testing and treatment of sexually transmitted infections. We've been providing vaccinations, contraception advice, emergency contraception, pregnancy testing and just, you know, complete range of awareness and guidance. And it's, it's not just about STIs. It's actually about things like promoting positive sexual relationships, consent, um, you know, dealing with the, the stage of life that these people are at where they'll obviously encounter relationship and sexual problems. So um, we're really delighted. Uh, in, in line with our new university, we have this new service and it's set to be a model of care right across the country with talk of it being upscaled to other student health services. So we're very excited and delighted. So prior to this, where would you have had to travel to if you were a student in Athlone? Yeah, this is a this has been a long uh, road to get to to this week where we launched our service. So for the past ten years, um, there was a gaping hole in the Midlands where students would have had to travel for up to an hour to a specialised clinic, and that clinic may have only taken place at a certain time on a certain day. Um, they encountered a lot of barriers, like the time to travel, the travel cost. Um, you know, fear of stigma and embarrassment and, you know, just um, time spent away from college. And this was really bothering me because I felt that, you know, um, the implications of not attending were, were far too detrimental, um, not only for the individual health, but, you know, the health of others. Um, and when we looked at it and audited it, 90% of the students that we referred never attended. So that's kind of set my campaign and advocacy off. Um, and it's taken nine years to get to the point we are now. But, you know, it really is um, the realisation of, of a goal um, for our students now that they can now have, you know, equitable, accessible care, exactly what they deserve in the right place, you know, with the right people. So it's an environment where they're comfortable um, and I suppose testament to that is the fact that um, it's a very busy service. We have already, in the short time that the pilot ran, catered um, to provide consultations for 25% of the student population. So, you know, we've up, um, I think, 1,600 consultations provided already. Um, there's a waiting list. Um, we see symptomatic patients the same day, but it's a busy service. So, you know, it's nice that you have that, you know, realisation that build it and they will come. Yes, I recall earlier, well, it would have been last year, actually, in fact, 
there were figures as to the prevalence of STIs in the Midlands and for some reason incidents had been spiking. I'm not exactly sure why. Do you also give advice in a preventative sense? Oh, that's that's the the main part of our work because if you think about the stage that you know young people are at coming to college, it's it's a new start for them. They're often moving between puberty and adulthood and starting relationships or maybe finding you know what their preferences are. Um, and a whole body of our work is on health promotion, education, awareness, and um, you know providing the reliable information at the right place and the right time. And this is a huge preventive effect. And you know people then know. Um, and it becomes normal part of their student health and student life to, I suppose, just regularly get checked that if they have a symptom, they know where to go and get tested and treated early. And then also there's a, a peer element to as well where, you know, if a student has a positive experience, they'll tell their friends, they'll tell, tell their classmates. And I have seen firsthand over my 10 years in, in Athlone where we've changed cult- culture, you know, um, when I started in 2012, students would have been afraid to mention the word chlamydia or mention a symptom for fear of being judged. And we pride ourselves on being non-judgmental. We're here to listen, not to tell. You know, our services are available for everyone, regardless of gender and sexual preference. And really, we're just here to put you on the right track. And that's the good thing about this, because this will go beyond the walls of the college. This is setting you up for positive sexual relationships right throughout your life. So um, it's, it's a really proud moment to be able to step in and do that in the right place and at the right time um, and I think in a couple of years we see the benefit of that where you won't be seeing those statistics like you mentioned Well good to know it's there because while there may be less of a stigma than there used to be it's still not something you're going to tell mum and dad about Laura thank you very much for your time Not at all thank you very much and thanks for your support and helping us get this far Laura Tully is clinical clinical manager of the new sexual health service at Toos Midlands. Just so you're aware, I'm broadcasting from Germ Central today. So Adam Cunningham is my esteemed colleague back at base, pressing mostly the right buttons, and he's new to the job, and he's learning very quickly what to do and what not to do. Good morning. Now, still coming up today, as the Health Minister announces faster operations for children with scoliosis, one little Midlands girl enters her 26th month of waiting. If you're chronically ill and can't exercise, a new wellness programme in Athlone may change that. And the Friday panel hears why the more attractive you are, the better your immune system, according to science. When you call 0818 30103 is my number, you can text or WhatsApp 083 30 10 103, powered by Lamb Brothers Toyota in Tullamore. And do get involved today, by the way. Fantastic prize. The uh, funniest night out you will have had in the last two years as the three Hail Marys shall be performed in Mullingar Art Centre on March 5th. Now, let's revisit a case that we've been following closely over the last couple of weeks here on Midlands 103. There has been a hung jury in the trial of a young man from Port Arlington who was accused of murdering a fisherman four years ago. Frank Graney is our court's correspondent. Can you give us the latest, Frank? Good morning. Good morning to you, Will. Um, Well, the jury began its deliberations earlier this week. Uh, They were sent out for a couple of hours on Tuesday. 
they continued the deliberations on Wednesday. And when they returned yesterday morning, um, the judge told them that she would accept a majority verdict if they couldn't arrive at a unanimous verdict. And the jurors came back just before lunchtime to inform the court that they couldn't reach agreement in relation to any of the verdicts that were open to them. Self-defence was an issue in this case for them to consider. So they had a number of verdicts open to them. They could have acquitted Dean Carey of murder and of any criminal wrongdoing if they felt that he was acting in self-defence and that the force that he had used on Jack Power after he entered his house as a trespasser in the early hours of July 26, 2018. If they felt that the force used was reasonable and not excessive, he could have been acquitted of any wrongdoing. They could, of course, have found him guilty of murder if they felt that he had intended to cause serious harm or to kill uh, Jack Power uh, that night. And the other option open to them was they could have acquitted him of the murder charge and found him um, guilty of the less serious charge of manslaughter. Only difference there between manslaughter and murder, as would have been explained to the jury, um, it goes to the intention of the accused person. But in the end, after considering the evidence for about seven hours across three days, they were not able to reach a verdict in relation to any of, of those. So the jury was excused. Yesterday was discharged. Um, Mr. Kerry was remanded on continuing bail. His case will come back before the Central Criminal Court again early next month. And we'll find out at that point uh, what, uh, what, the, what the next stage of the process is, whether or not there is going to be a retrial. How unusual is a hung jury? It doesn't happen very often, um, but it does happen. You know, juries from time to time can't reach agreement. Um, the longer a jury is deliberating, the more likely it is that they will be given the option of returning a majority verdict. Um, ordinarily, the court would prefer for 12 jurors to be singing off the same hymn sheet, but where that's not possible, um, a, a court can accept the verdicts of 10 or 11 jurors, they would be considered majority, but it would be no lower than than 10. Um, that direction was obviously given to the jury yesterday. They continued their deliberations for a, a number of hours, but it was clear when they came back just before lunchtime that they were still deadlocked and they didn't feel that they would be able to move from that position. And that's why the judge thanked them for their service, excused them from jury service for a number of years because of the fact that they sat through what was a very... A distressing trial. Um, you know, we heard the details of how Jack Power died in the early hours of that morning in a single stab wound, a very deep stab wound, 13 centimetres, we heard. Um, but it was, I suppose, the goings on in the house that night that the jury would have been concerned about and whether or not um, they considered Jack Power or, or Dean Kerry to be acting in self-defence. Dean Kerry took the stand himself. Uh, towards the latter stages of the trial. He was under no obligation to do so. He had pleaded not guilty to the charge. It was obviously up to the other side to prove its case beyond a reasonable doubt. But he did take the stand, and he gave his version of events of what happened uh, that night. Um, he was 17 years of age at the time, so he was about eight years younger than Jack Power. Jack Power was a local fisherman. They were living in Dunmore East in County Waterford at the time. Um, Dylan Jones was another witness who gave evidence towards the end of the trial he was a very good friend of of Dean Carey and he stayed over with him that night um, there was an issue during the trial we heard um, there was a claim that Jack Power had thought that Dean Carey had caused some damage to the wing mirror of his car and 
that was, according to another witness who gave evidence on behalf of the prosecution, why Jack Power went to his house uh, that night. Now, that was put to Dean Kerry when he was giving his evidence or under cross-examination, and he 100% denied causing any damage to Jack Power's wing mirror. He said he went to sleep at about midnight. He said he awoke sometime afterwards to the sound of glass breaking and that when he went to investigate, he said that he saw a Jack outside. He denied going out to him. That was something that another witness claimed in his evidence. Uh, he claimed to have seen Dean Kerry in his garden with Jack Power. Um, and this was at about four o'clock in the morning. He denied going outside. He said that Jack had kicked the door in, that he came at him. He was in his brother's bedroom at the time. He claimed he grabbed him by the throat. He was choking him. He was threatening to kill him. And he said that he passed out momentarily. And, and when he came to his sentence, or senses, uh, Dean Kerry said that he was on the floor in the corner of this bedroom. He could see Jack shouting at his, at his mother. He claimed that he was assaulting her. Uh, he said he spotted a kitchen knife on his brother's bed. So he grabbed it in an effort to scare Jack away. And he claimed that as Jack was trying to kick the knife out of his hands, um, he lost his footing. And Dean Kerry told the juror, jurors that he ended up falling on the blade and being accidentally stabbed. Now, that was in contrast to the version of events given by another witness, a man called Christopher Lee. Uh, he was described as Jack Power's uh, best friend. He met him in the early hours of, of that morning. Um, again, he claimed that Jack was going on about Dean Kerry having caused some damage to his car. And he said he tore off up the street and that when he caught up with him, Christopher Lee could see him in the garden with Dean Kerry and with Dean Kerry's mother, Anne. And again, this was something that Dean Kerry denied in his evidence. He said he wasn't in the, in the garden with Jack Power. And in Christopher Lee's evidence, he said that he could see a scuffle inside the house after they all went to the house. Christopher Lee was still outside. He claimed to see a scuffle in the house. And he said the front door was open and he could see his friend um, walking out towards him. He could see right into the hallway and he was calling to him to leave. And he claimed that as he was walking towards him, he saw Dean Kerry emerge from the kitchen with a long knife, which he said that he used to stab Jack in the chest with. Now, clearly Dean Kerry in his evidence and under cross-examination completely 100% denied that version of events and it would have been left to the jurors obviously they're the judges of fact so it would have been up to them to decide where the truth lay whether or not the prosecution had proven its case beyond a reasonable doubt and clearly as i mentioned that they were not in a position to do so yesterday indeed that question was it self-defense or was it an act of retaliation the jury unable to reach a verdict and it will come back before the court next month we'll talk to you again at that stage frank thanks for your summary no problem thank you will it is nearly 20 past 10 and still to come today. If you're chronically ill and you don't feel you can exercise, well, stay listening. A new wellness programme in Athlone may just change your mind on that. And also, as the health minister announces faster operations for children with scoliosis, one little girl from the Midlands enters her 26th month of waiting. It is 25 past 10 and, yeah, you can hear the wind I'm sure you can hear it in the background anyway, and certainly if you are in the Midlands, um, maybe not further north, the Storm Eunice has managed to land. And, well, she started off quietly. She has now announced her arrival, that is for sure. Now, we'll update you on the weather conditions and, indeed, any power outages in our news bulletin at 11. After which, we will be addressing that dilemma from a mum earlier who hasn't seen her daughter in two years, but when she did clap eyes on her, 
She felt she was maybe three or four stone heavier and looking extremely unhealthy. And since there's a history of cardiovascular disease in the family, she wants to talk to her daughter about it. But her husband is saying, don't bring it up. It will result in fat shaming. It will make a bad situation worse. She doesn't feel she can just sit there and say nothing. And I want to know how you would handle it. Now, a new plan is being announced by the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, to accelerate the waiting times for children who have scoliosis and spina bifida. And this will involve linking Kappa Orthopaedic Hospital with Children's Health Ireland, that it will target uh, the number of scoliosis patients who are waiting four months or more uh, reducing it from a, uh, from 90 at the moment down to zero by the end of the year. So in other words, you would be waiting no more than four months for your operation if you should require one from 2023 onwards. But let's just get a picture of the situation as things stand now. Jessie Mortensen knows all too much about this because she is the mum of seven-year-old Rosie, who I believe has only recently had her operation after waiting more than two years. Jessie, good morning. Hi, you will. Tell us what happened eventually when you managed to force their hand to do the surgery. Yeah, so um, on the 10th of January, um, we made a decision that we would bring Rosie into the emergency department in Temple Street and that we would refuse to leave until her surgery happened. We'd been waiting 29 months at this stage. Um, Rosie's condition had deteriorated quite rapidly in the last couple of months. And yeah, so we went in and we just refused to leave. Now, I dare say you didn't do this idly. You didn't do it as a stunt. What drove you to that point? Well, I suppose, you know, watching her condition um, deteriorate, it was, it, was, it was really difficult to see. You know, her skin was starting to break down on her legs. Um, you know, it was getting to the stage that I was afraid that she may become inoperable. And um, we just couldn't, we couldn't run the risk of that happening. So when, when you arrived on the 10th of January, what was their position initially until they gave in? Um, yes, yeah, so when we arrived, it was a Monday and um, Rosie's surgeon was actually operating in a different hospital um, on that day. So... Um, when I went in, I just said I wanted to see him. I didn't want to see anybody else. Um, nobody else knew her like he did. So they, you know, they were saying kind of, well, look, he's not here today. And I said, well, look, I'll, I'll, I'll sit and I'll wait for him because um, I was afraid, you know, if we went home, they were saying, we'll, we'll send you out a date to see him in clinic. And I just knew we were going to be waiting another couple of months. Um, so... They, they finally gave in and they admitted her um, just overnight uh, to see him. So we seen him on the Tuesday morning and he agreed with me and he said, yeah, absolutely, this needs to be done. This can't be left any longer. And um, But he said, look, I'm not going to get this done this week. I'm not sure when it's going to be done. So um, the following Monday, 
that was the 17th. Um, she was fasted for about 13 hours. Her legs were marked. She was ready to go down to theatre. She was in her gown and it was cancelled. Um, so then the following Friday, again, the same situation. Um, and again, cancelled again. So finally then on the 24th, after being there for 14 days, um, she went to theatre and she had her surgery done. It's worth noting for anybody who'd missed the first conversation we had a few months ago that a cancellation was all too familiar to you. How many times had her surgery been put off and put off and put off? Um, so we had originally got a date for the 4th of October and um, that was that was cancelled three days beforehand and we we never received another date. So that was October and we were into January and still didn't have a new date um, for surgery. So we didn't know when it was ever going to happen. And at this stage, as I said, we were 29 months waiting for it. We'll come back to the Minister's plan in a minute, but mm-hmm. most importantly, how is she doing now? She's doing great. Um, she's It's quite a long recovery from the surgery that was quite extensive so she is three and a half weeks into it now and we have probably another five weeks of um, casts and splints on her legs and a couple of trips up and down to Kappa to fit splints and um, but she's she's doing great she's um, back in school now and um, yeah she's but you can already see the improvements and it's it's amazing. And from a pain standpoint, obviously she's post-surgical pain, but is she improving? Yeah, the pain is quite well managed, thank God. So she's, yeah, she's quite, she's quite good. So what we understand of the minister's plan is that he is going to, quote, ring fence orthopaedic theatre time there will be dedicated pay, beds for patients. They'll make increased use of private sector hospitals as well to reduce the waiting time by the end of the year to no more than four months. Uh, apparently, Rosie would have been one of less than 100 children to be waiting four months or more. That sounds quite suspect when you say it was 27 months in your case. Yeah, absolutely. Um, look, obviously that news is very welcomed and we really hope that the money goes to the right places and that the urgent cases are dealt with you know, as, as soon as possible. It seems ambitious, but um, yeah, hopefully, look, time last year, I guess. Well, indeed, and to be positive, let's hope nobody else has to endure that sort of waiting time again and maybe the right places. Jesse, thank you very much for your time. Yep, thanks a million. That's Jesse Mortensen. Rosie has finally had her surgery, and so far, so good, and fingers crossed. Now, still to come today, the masks, and yesterday a very divided verdict among listeners would continue to wear a face mask voluntarily once the mandatory requirements are lifted, presumably on Monday week. That's the recommendation from Neffet. So we'll hear what people on the street have to say on that subject very soon. Also, a new wellness programme. If you are chronically ill and feel you can't exercise, well, stay listening. Around quarter to 11, we'll have more details on that one. Plus, the Friday panel shall be finding out if it's really true that the more attractive you are, 
the stronger your immune system. Yes, uh, one listener says, if immune systems and attractiveness are linked, well, my family is the new benchmark, says this message. I'm just thinking myself, listen to me. Yes, that is proof, proof that uh, ugly people get sick. <laughs> As if you see me, just picture a bulldog licking you-know-what off a nettle. Indeed. Anyway, moving on. So, the... Uh, yes, the issue of face masks. We had quite a debate yesterday as to whether you should continue to wear a face mask voluntarily even after the mandatory requirement is lifted and some made a very strong case that it's not for your protection but for the protection of those around you. Almost a civic duty to continue wearing a face mask. And then many others disagree. Absolutely fervently. I see this becoming quite a heated issue in shops, on trains, all sorts of settings. But let's hear what people on the street have to say first. Can't wait, keep wearing face masks forever. At some point, society's going to have to open up. I presume all the work's been done in the background to suggest that this is okay. Am I in favour of it? I'm on defence. I don't know. Yes, I will continue to wear them. I have to wear it in work uh, all day, so um, I've gotten used to, to wearing them now. Yeah. I use the disposable ones. I buy them all the time. Yeah. So Now, I do. I did have cloth ones, but I feel they're too heavy on the face. Well, I don't really wear like makeup or anything, but I do see a lot of people, uh, they get their face masks covered in makeup. You can pull some faces underneath <laughs> and yeah. nobody yeah. will see, you know. Annoy me big time. I always have one in my pocket. I've got used to that part of it, all right. Would you feel awkward now walking into a shop or pub without wearing a face mask? I wouldn't, no. I'm walking into the pub already without them, so good news. Yeah, I do have the cloth ones and I could wear a couple of days before I take it off. Well, personally, I'm going to keep wearing my face mask. The virus is not gone just because they lifted the restrictions. It's totally not 100% gone. Like, the hospitals are still, like, busy, like, treating people for it. Like, I remember in the beginning it was really annoying. I couldn't get used to it, but now I can't imagine what I would. Like, I'm well used to it now because I always make sure I have an extra face mask in my pocket been two years I would feel really weird not having one feel really awkward like with a naked face basically they didn't see me thank god I think I'd prefer in certain situations to wear them a face mask definitely if I was travelling or conscious of it in shops and big crowds I would be wearing it I'd prefer not to have to wear it but I feel secure to wear it when I'm supposed to wear it well do you know I don't have it on my arm and I go in and I still don't put it on my mouth sometimes but I, you, you can forget and just run in but. well the way I look at it I think if it helps other people because I should continue to wear it for my own safety and other people's safety I think I would feel awkward without the mask it hides a few of the wrinkles bring it up a bit in the face and it hides a few <laughs> I don't know why but I, I am drawn to it crowded areas like public transport I think they should remain till the figures go down a bit I used to get the common cold every winter and this winter winter from wearing them I didn't get it so you don't pick up as much germ <laughs> I like that wear the face mask to hide the wrinkles well that's a selection of voices put together by Midlands 103's Claire Ann Nolan Junior Housing Minister Peter Burke is with us he's a Fine Gael TD in Longford Westmeath good morning Minister good morning Will and to your listeners we should clarify this is only a letter of recommendation from NEFET at this point. From your understanding, will government take their advice on board? I think they potentially will, but what I'm hearing in my office and uh, through meeting people is a direct reflection of your box pop. You know, a lot of people are concerned and there's a lot of uh, very anxious people who are immunocompromised who had some just start starting to enter society again. So I can understand the nervousness there but I suppose in terms of where Neffet are coming for, from they have to 
I suppose, be proportionate and they have to say, well, look, at the moment, the disease has changed its uh, attack to a very upper respiratory disease and that the link between hospitalisation and infection has largely been broken. And on that basis, they see it's time, essentially, to move on. And it's very hard for our listeners probably to see the magnitude that NEPHIT potentially has met for the very last time under the way it is currently constituted. So we're entering a very different phase of society again. Is there now a case to review the performance of NEPHIT, to look back over the last two years, evaluate and learn from it? Oh, absolutely, and I think I would be all for that. I think uh, we have to try and learn from mistakes that were made. And in any pandemic, in any emergency, I remember I was appointed acting chief whip at the very start of the emergency and was really in the box seat in terms of listening to a lot of the advice and you know set, setting the uh, rules in the doll in terms of when the pandemic reached our shores right towards the end of February, uh, early March of 2020, and the uncertainty of how we were going to respond, what are other countries doing? And we saw those harrowing images from Italy when coffins were being carried by the army because of the number and scale that the authorities couldn't deal with them. And it's amazing, you know, things were done very well and some things weren't done so well. So I think we have to always evaluate for future pandemics again how we behaved, how we responded as a government, what mistakes were made. But also, and this is a critical part, uh, Will, I think in a pandemic and in any emergency, you know, officials have to have the scope to, to take bold decisions. Uh, and some of those decisions will be wrong, and especially some of the expenditure on certain PPE and other tenders that went out may have not been value for money, but they were done in the best interest. So it shouldn't be a blame game, but it should be, look, critically evaluate, did we do this right? Did we do that wrong? Well, I imagine you and others on the Public Accounts Committee will look into that latter point. On the issue of face masks, are you going to continue to wear yours? I would in a very crowded area, absolutely. Uh, And I do feel safe with it. And as one lady was saying there in the Vox Pop, you know, I haven't had a cold in a long, long time. And I suppose that's a reflection in terms of the precautions we're now taking, as well as sanitising your hands and better hygiene all round. And that has made a huge difference in terms of the scale and prevalence of the flu over the last two years and we all can see the benefits of that so I do think if I was in a crowded area or if I was on a crowded train and public transport absolutely I'd feel more comfortable wearing the face mask. Minister Peter Burke appreciate your time thank you for taking the call. Thank you very much Will. Peter Burke is a Fine Gael TD in Longford Westmeath. Now still to come today if you're worried about a family member who's put on weight how do you have that conversation because There's an opinion piece in the Irish Independent today which suggests you really shouldn't talk to them because it could be guilt-inducing, it could be counterproductive, have all the wrong effects. But the writer of this letter to the paper doesn't feel she can sit on her hands and not say anything. It's her own flesh and blood. She knows there's a history of heart disease in the family, so she wants to address it. But how do you do it in the right way? Next, though. If you're chronically ill and can't exercise, or at least don't feel you can exercise, well, stay listening. A new wellness programme in Athlone may just change your mind. A new wellness programme is being launched for people with chronic illness here in the Midlands, and it's called Exercise for Wellness. It's being launched in Athlone Regional Sports Centre. It's offering community-based supervised exercise classes, as well as home programmes, if you have many long-term illnesses. 
The pilot project of near 100 participants involved referral to the Midlands Regional Hospital in Tullamore and indeed referral from local GPs and the participants showed dramatic improvements in strength, aerobic fitness, frailty and self-rated health. Pat, who had an accident in February of last year, has been speaking with Midlands 103's Cameron Clark about how the classes helped him during his recovery. Uh, I fell on the concrete floor, had a compressed fracture of the lumbar spine. I was dead up for about 12 weeks, and I, when I came out of it, I was very, I suppose, um, muscles were weak, and my body was struggling. And uh, so Jerry suggested to me if I don't about this program, so I came along here, and uh, probably the best thing I did in, in 2021. I mean, the programme challenges your heart, it challenges your lungs, it challenges every muscle in your body, and uh, I really feel uh, the benefit of it now. Um, and the life that I did it. I would say within three to four weeks, I was feeling the results. I mean, I suppose one of the things I do, I, I play some golf, and prior to coming to the class, swinging the club was quite, I used to have to grind through the swing because of the lack of conditioning in my body. But suddenly I was feeling that I was swinging the club much freer and actually went on to win one of the competitions. And I would put, I would put that down to the conditioning of the body at, at the gym sessions here. And it's probably one of the, it's the best thing I did in 2021. I don't suppose I didn't do really to help, but that's a side benefit of it. I used to take me two or three days to recover from a game of golf after the injury. Now I could go and play two days in the trot and it wouldn't bother me. Daniel Fagan, head of operations at Exwell Medical, hopes to remove exercise limitations for those in the programme. It originated from the work we did in City West, um, and that was our first H- fully HSE funded programme. And it was a huge program that that accommodated the upstairs of the convention centre and partnered with the HSE for the first time. And it was it was the chief executive of the Dublin Midlands Hospital Group that noticed the program and how impactful it was in City West. And inspired by that, um, we started the process of looking at suitable venues within Athlone. Well, predominantly it, it's for persons with, with a primary diagnosis of, of any so that could be heart disease, it could be stroke it could be pulmonary, it could be we have musculoskeletal referrals we have all, all forms of chronic illness, another term for chronic illness is long term illness it, it doesn't go away, there isn't a quick fix um, and, it, and it usually causes deconditioning within the body it causes you know increased amount of frailty and, and, and that, that often leads to isolation and you know low confidence and also has an impact on on person's mental health. Marie had never worked out before joining Exwell and is grateful for the lifestyle change. I really haven't uh, stood in a gym before in my life you know uh, like all my family are uh, gyms and their you know their sports activities and that and I was always the one kind of that was minding the shoes or minding the coats and that kind of thing you know so I was a bit nervous and then I you know, my underlying conditions, I was wondering, yeah, will I be able for this at all? But absolutely, it was very friendly, very friendly, and uh, there was a great variety of people here, and uh, all sorts of shapes and sizes, all backgrounds, uh, and the, the, the bottom line was just, not sure everybody was here, just to see if they could improve themselves a little bit, and... Yeah, make a few friends. Dr. Theresa Donnelly, consultant geriatrician at Tullamore Hospital, 
highlights the health benefits of the XWELL programme. So this is a very special programme that is graded to each individual. You're not expected to come in and be fit. You're expected to come in and get well. So it starts from your baseline and you work up to the exercise programme that suits you in a very gradual manner, improving your breathing, improving your muscle tone, giving you confidence to know how much you're able to do and to gradually build on that. Everyone is different, so say you're unable to walk a prolonged period, but you may want to work on your upper body, your upper core strength, so maybe that's one programme for some person. People that have COVID that maybe are breathless on more than they know, so they start at their baseline and they improve their breathing, improving their ability to walk and to exercise. Maybe people with joint problems can work on their muscle tone, their core strength, simple things that just maybe the difference between able to do the stairs without having problems to now being able to walk up the stairs without having to think about it. It's not going to make you run 10k, it's going to improve your quality of life, improve your ability to do everyday things. Column needed to boost in motivation after some life setbacks. I had a heart attack um, previous and I had uh, three stents put in and although I was keeping myself as fit as I could, uh, I felt I could do more and then this came on and Dr Flynn recommended me to come to it and I did and haven't looked back since. I, I was very nervous actually. I thought after the first day, this is not for me. I have no way am I ever going to do this. And then for some reason or another, I came to the second session and I took that bad, I enjoyed it. And after that, then I was hooked. It gets easier. It is hard, but the effects afterwards are brilliant. You know, you feel so good in yourself. Uh, my fitness and I've lost an awful lot of weight already uh, by coming here. And even even now, sometimes you might have an off day. You know, where you, you know you, you're not 100 percent, but you get through it. You do it, and you know you're going to feel better afterwards. And I think that's the motivation: is how good you feel afterwards. And it's not just say an hour or two afterwards. It's for a couple of days afterwards you feel good. You know, I tried doing the program at home by myself, and I even put on the music Adele plays. You know, to get and it wasn't the same. After about 10 minutes. You need the motivation here, and Adele, our instructor, is brilliant at that. And if you want to hear that again, that report by Midlands 103's Cameron Clark, it will be available in the listen back section of midlands103.com. Power has been restored to over 500 homes in Offaly and Westmeath since the onset of Storm Eunice. Find out more in the news at 11. In around 15 minutes, the Friday panel shall be here. One of the items on the agenda, the more attractive you are, the stronger your immune system, apparently, according to science. Yeah, not sure I believe that. They're trying to say that good-looking people can't get sick. Hmm, we shall see. Now, here's a dilemma in the Irish Independent this morning. And... I'm not sure if I agree with some of the advice in this, so I'd like your opinion on it. The question is, my daughter lives abroad, and because of lockdown, I haven't seen her all that much over the last two years. She recently came to visit with her children, and I got an awful shock when I saw her. She must have put on three or four stone, and looks extremely unhealthy. I made a few subtle references to her weight gain during her trip, but I'm not sure if she picked up on them. I'm not even sure if she realises how much weight she has put on. 
We have a family history of obesity and cardiovascular disease, so I'm very concerned about her health and where this weight gain might lead. I'm thinking of saying it to her and perhaps paying for her to see a dietician, but her father says it's not my place to police her body and her sister sent me an article on fat shaming, so what should I do? Now, the response, and to be fair to the paper, they've asked quite a few experts on this, um, one of them, a psychotherapist, says weight stigma can lead to poorer health behaviour and impact overall physical health. Absolutely agree with that. Another says your daughter may feel stigmatised if you bring up her weight. Uh, an obvious statement from another is that talking about weight is a very sensitive issue. Indeed. And it is entangled with self-worth. And, and that is for sure. Um, but it also goes on to suggest that perhaps she is not treating her daughter as an independent person in her own right, that it may well be that she sees her daughter as an extension of her younger self, and that has heightened her fear and heightened her anxiety about the situation. And in the heel of the hunt, there really isn't very much advice in here about how to have the conversation. Most of the responses suggest she should avoid bringing it up completely. And if you're a mum or a dad and you're worried about one of your children, I'm not sure you can sit on your hands quite as easily as that. So let's ask Lucy Luby for her take on this. She is a nutritionist in Mullingar, good friend of the programme. Lucy, how are you? Good morning, Will. How are you doing? Very well. Ah, very well. Now, I know it's delicate, and that goes without saying, and you certainly don't want to come out with a sledgehammer approach, but how would you deal with this? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm dealing with this um, every day of the week in my clinic, you know, when when people come to me. But the difference is um, they have given me permission to discuss it, you know, and they, I've been asked for their help. So I, I suppose that was the one thing that jumped out at me when I read this article is that the mother is rushing in with a solution um, and the conversation hasn't even been had. And the one thing I'm learning very quickly with my 16-year-old daughter is, Mammy, if I need your help, I'll ask for it. Mm. <laughs> you know, and that's something, I suppose, that I would kind of encourage here if I was talking to the mother. And I suppose you've experienced it with a 16-year-old, if it was a 26-year-old, exactly. if it was a 36-year-old, then the mum's advice becomes apply. all the less relevant. Yes, the same. So I suppose the, the father is saying here, um, it's not your job to police her body. So that I would ask myself, well, does that mean that she has been policing this daughter's body beforehand? Or is this the type of mum that polices bodies? Um and the other thing is the sister, the, the sister sent a, an article on fat shaming. So I'm wondering, well, what triggered that? So there must be something else going on here. In, it, there is, obviously is an issue um, or a fear or a concern or an over-concern about obesity in the family and the mother has issues surrounding this, whatever they are. And that is, uh, you know, running over into her relationship with her daughter. Um, you know, so... I suppose you may well be right. You may well be right, Lucy. But here's a text from Adele, and she says she didn't listen to her doctor or to mm -hmm. her family when they were encouraging her to lose weight earlier in life. Now she has type 2 diabetes, and her strong advice 
to that girl or to anybody in this situation is to try and lose the weight. Be careful what you eat. Try to avoid stresses and triggers. But yeah. don't ignore it. Yeah, no, you, you can't ignore it. But I suppose the, the only thing the mother can do at the moment until she has that permission to have that discussion is she needs to avoid the topic of weight completely. She does not have that permission to go there. It's too personal. It's too sensitive. You cannot rush in and pick at somebody's scab. We all have a scab. You cannot rush in and pick at somebody else's scab without their permission. And that's final, OK? There's, as far as I'm concerned, there's no negotiating over that. But what she can do, OK? So what she can talk to her daughter and find out what's going on in her life. Find out why without asking the obvious question. You know, stop with the subtle hints. They're not subtle. The daughter, of course, she's picking up on them. I'm sure it was very difficult for the daughter to arrive home knowing she's put on two to three stone, arrive with her children and know that she's potentially being subtly judged and then she has man dropping all these hints. It's just going to be another two to three years before this girl comes home again, okay? Mm. So what the mother can do, because that's what she's looking for, she's looking for a solution and in fairness to her, she has suggested a dietitian. You know, um, a dietitian potentially isn't necessary. A clinical dietitian will work with someone that has a clinically diagnosed condition. If she doesn't have a clinically diagnosed condition like type 2 diabetes, she can go a step back from that and go down the route of working with a nutritionist or a nutritional therapist like myself, okay? So basically the solution is looking at her foods and looking at what she should eat to improve her health. But before she even gets down that route is she needs to just have a cosy, warm, loving, non-judgmental chat with her daughter to find out what's going on. What has happened in the last two to three years where we have not been in touch? Are you sleeping? Have you any support with the kids? Because if you're not sleeping, it's going to drive up the hormone leptin, which is going to basically drive you down the sugar craving route. Most mums with small kids, they're looking after their children and they're operating on total self-neglect. I see it here all the time. You know, they, they get the kids out up and dressed and out to school. And this, I'm sure, applies to stay-at-home fathers as well, too. And then the mum, you know, she barely gets a breakfast herself, too. So she's operating on total, total self-neglect. So she needs to start with finding out the basic care needs that the daughter has towards herself. Is she eating properly? Is she drinking enough water? Is she getting enough rest? What's going on in her life, her home life at the moment? Is she the sole carer for the kids? Is the husband too busy to help out to pull his weight? Um, you know, is she basically uh, retreating after being in lockdown? Has she lost touch with her friends? Has she outside interest other than her children, her husband? Because very often as a mother, especially if you're a stay-at-home mother, you lose that sense of your own purpose, your own identity. And that's extremely important. And then that can lead to emotional harming where it's self-driven, where your, your self-talk becomes very destructive and you go down towards the route of comfort eating. So that's what the mother can do for the moment without even mentioning her weight. Yeah, you see, the problem, I suppose, leads... is the long distance that has separated them and the time and to have that conversation. It's going to probably be over a number of phone calls or a number of Zooms, otherwise yeah. it becomes the Spanish Inquisition. And, yeah, and uh, it's you know, gently, that'll set gently. off an alarm bell. Yeah, it's gently, gently. But, I mean, none of us nowadays can use long distance as, as an excuse. 
Um, you know, like, I mean, I'm, I, I worked face to face with people prior to lockdown and then had to make the, the uncomfortable switch to remote uh, calls with, with clients. And I was actually surprised how well that touch in phone call worked. Most of my clients wanted to chat over the phone as opposed to the Zoom because they didn't want to be looking at themselves. You know, so that little connection, that call at a regular time of the week and building on where they were at, finding out where they were at and working up from there, supporting, not judging, you know, trying to put yourself in their shoes. So you find your own little, um, you know, we all have a sore point or something that we're not ready to discuss, something that's, you know, it could have been you were bullied at school. It could be that, you know, you, 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 you're, um, you know, a nail biter. It could be that you're a smoker. It could be that you're drinking more than you should. And that's a topic that, you know, I need to address this. I need to address this. You don't yes, need that's an interesting point that, that you make. And again, I respect immensely the experience and the training you have. But let's say somebody was self-medicating with alcohol as opposed to comfort yes. eating. You'd probably. Hello? I said you'd probably be a bit more direct in addressing if they were self-medicating with alcohol rather than comfort eating. Absolutely. It's the same thing here. The reasons why are probably the same. You know, and, and uh, uh, like, since I've, I've started this, well, and my background is in psychiatric nursing, so my, my, I, I have a complete comfort zone with, with talking about these things, talking about the elephant in the room. But like I said at the start, I have permission and I have been asked for help. So that's the difference between me and this mother, okay? So talking about these things, uh, you need to be comfortable about it. And sometimes talking to a stranger is so much easier than talking to a family member because a family member tends to be very judgmental and tends to police. And there is that tendency to control. You know, it's like... You know, I'm having this argument with my 16-year-old at the moment. It's like, you know, every time there's a chipper or a takeaway, you know, uh, I, I'm kind of going, you know what, Lana, you need to watch what you're eating and you need to, you know, and she's like, Mommy, I'm nearly an adult, you know, back off. And I have to learn to, okay, remove myself from that and allow her move forward and make her own mistakes, you know. Um, and that's very hard for a mother to do when you were the sole person in charge of their health and well-being before. But there is that transition from teenage years into adult years where you do need to step back and let them make mistakes, let them learn. And hopefully what you taught them in the early years will come back in, you know, to, to play when, when they're more grown up. But we don't know the history between this mother and this daughter. And that's the difference. But I do know from every single, especially females that I meet here in my clinic, every single one of them, their issues with their weight started around 13, 14, 15, 16 with comments from family members. You know, All right. fine childbearing but... hips, etc., etc. That type <laughs> yeah. of comment. You know, and that's the age where girls tend to put on body fat. And then it usually settles down and, and, and they come into their own around the age of 15, 16. So that's a hugely sensitive area. And that's something in Ireland we need to become far more aware of is the language we use when we're speaking to teenage boys and girls and our, the fact that we do not have permission to comment on their bodies. And we're learning that. And, and that's something I think could improve, uh, you know, people 
the numbers in people suffering with anorexia and bulimia and fat shaming and all of those type of things in later life, if we learn that huge important step, if you don't have permission, do not speak. And if you have Lu- permission to speak, speak with empathy. Lucy, thank you for your point of view. If anybody wants to follow up with you, by the way, because I'm sure this will strike a chord with a lot of people, how can you be reached? I usually Facebook or Instagram, Lucy Luby Nutrition are the best ways to contact me or on my website, www.lucylubynutrition.ie. Lucy, take care. It is Friday morning and if you haven't already gotten involved in the programme, please do because tickets to see the three Hail Marys performing in Mullingar Art Centre on March 5th can be yours and it is guaranteed to be a tonic. It's going to make you laugh. And that's what you need after two very long years. Two very long years under the guidance of the National Public Health Emergency Team, which in their latest letter to government suggests they should be stood down. Let's see what our Friday panellists say about this. Let's first say good morning to Irene Gill from Husky Rescue Ireland, and she is based in County Leash. How are things, Irene? Hi, Will. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Um, How is the charity operating at the moment? Are you? Are you oh, you're getting blown away, are you? <laughs> we're getting blown away. Um, we're uh, like all rescues, unfortunately, in the country. We're getting a tsunami of the COVID dogs still coming in, and spaces in our rescue and with all the rescues, pretty much around the country, are like gold dust at the minute. We just can't keep up with the dogs. Yeah, it's been very difficult, and I think short-term decisions were made without looking at the return to work, the less time available for the pet. It's yeah. and and what sort of results do you have when it comes to looking for new homes? Are they in short supply or are they plentiful? No, they're in short supply also because, again, people who have got these dogs and handed them in or surrendered them, they, they, they realise now that they don't have the time or they don't want the time for their dogs. Um, so there is a huge shortage of homes as well. And on top of that, the dogs that we are getting in at the moment because they're only one-year-old and two-year-old, they haven't had enough time with their owners to um, be trained or, you know, have a little bit of manners or just the basics. And then they're coming into us after leaving a family for such a short time and they don't know whether they're coming or going. There's separation anxiety. Mm. It's not straightforward, unfortunately. Well, from pets to pests, Kieran Lambert from Lambert's Pest Control, our own favourite pest. How are you? Uh, Good, Will, and you? Not too bad, not too bad. Um, I know we're coming into spring, the warmer months, and winter is typically when you're at your busiest. So what's keeping you occupied at the moment? Yeah, well, we're still busy with the, with the mice, Will. They're still coming in. Um, not not as busy as, say, before Christmas with them, but we'll always have a, a good few to deal with. And uh, like, we, like we have a lot of contract work as well, like with shops, restaurants, pubs. Um, so they always keep us busy and on our toes. Like We, all, we always have to do routine inspections for them. Uh, for the health inspectors and stuff anyhow. So, yeah, we're always busy. Now, another busy man. Michael Tobin is Dean of the Faculty of Continuing Professional Online and Distance Learning at TUS, the Technological University of the Shannon, formerly AIT. That's quite an introduction. Michael, how are you? That's a fantastic introduction, Will. I'm very good and upbeat this morning. I, I was wondering what you were going to say from pets to pests to what? The <laughs> <laughs> students, maybe, right? Yeah, look, we're, 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 we're racing to the term. We're halfway to the term here. Um, and I presume an awful lot of our students are listening in today because they're 
under their duvets as they kind of wait for this storm to actually uh, pass through the Midlands. Yes, well, I was one of those students last year, so I think the pest moved out <laughs> once the <laughs> academic year came to an end. Let's begin with the letter from the National Public Health Emergency Team issued to government last night. I suppose two strands to it. Mask wearing, we've debated quite a bit this week, and a lot of people will continue to wear them voluntarily, either for their own protection or out of a sense of duty to others. And many will differ from that and feel you can't wear masks forever. So uh, the second part was about the disbandment of Neffet itself, how would you rate the performance of Neffet over the last two years, Irene? Um, I think they did their best based on, on what they were, they were thrown in at the deep end. Nobody's seen this coming. And while some of their decisions were controversial up and down, I think ultimately they tried to do the best for the, the wider public, for all of us. Would you be as charitable, Kieran? Yeah, I would. Well, I think, yeah, look, they had a very tough uh, time with it. Um, and like now in hindsight we know a lot more about COVID and we vaccines and masks and stuff like that but you go back to say like nearly two years ago now uh, at the start of it when lo- the first lockdown say happened like the, there was no masks there was there was no vaccines we'd absolutely nothing you know so they'd done the best they had with the information they had at the time and it developed and it changed rapidly as, as the months went on as well so I think yeah fair juice to them and hats off to them and yeah. Michael would you give them a positive appraisal I would, and I, you know, will I even extend that out to broader society? I think that, you know, we're very good at maybe knocking our, ourselves. I think we should all be turning around and say, give ourselves a, a clap on the back. What we've all achieved to keep society going, to keep everything going over the last two years has been fantastic. I mean, Neffet, these guys and girls were jumped into a, a whole new scenario and they managed, yeah, we make mistakes and they made mistakes, but they got over them. And I think that in every organisation, private, public, etc., people have done fantastic work just to keep everything going so that we're getting back to some normality now. So I think, yeah, they did very well, but I think I think everybody in society in Ireland has done very well just to keep the ship on the road, and we've done that and we've achieved that. So well done all. Have you decided on campus what rules will apply for mask wearing? As yet, we haven't, and as yet, we haven't had that discussion. But currently on campus, we are still 100% wearing of masks on campus. So if you even look at some of the recent media pictures we've taken, uh, people in the pictures are actually wearing masks, right? So we've kept that going as far. Um, as I mentioned, we're halfway through term. So I presume discussions will take place now when we see what the government advises on Monday or Tuesday. And then we look at what, what we will do going forward. But currently, even today, it's, it's masks on campus, you know? And I think that's the rule we have at present. Uh, potentially that would change next Monday or Tuesday. I don't know because we haven't had that discussion. Um, but, you know, there is... There's always going to be that trade-off between voluntarily wearing it and, you know, the person who feels aggrieved because they have to wear it. And then there's the safety. And there's a lot of variables there, but we'll take, we'll take what the government tells us and the minister tells us to do. We'll just have a look at it and see how we can apply it. On our Friday panel, Michael Tobin from TUS, the Technological University of the Shannon, Kieran Lambert of Lambert's Pest Control, and he's based in Mullingar, and Irene Gill is from Husky Rescue Ireland, based in County Leash. Average temperature around the Midlands, it's a little bit milder now than it was this morning. Now, I'm not exactly sure how they've reached this conclusion, but Bank of Ireland say that people in Offaly are among the most romantic in the country. They have looked at our spending habits. 
have concluded that people in Offaly, Tipperary and Leitrim have spent about 500% more on Valentine's Day this year than last year. I'm not sure again how they know which purchases for Valentine's Day and which one isn't. But let's put this first of all to Michael Tobin. I think you live in Offaly, don't you? Did you go mad on Valentine's Day? Oh, well, sure. I'm still buying presents, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> I went wild. Also. You would only be still buying presents if you messed up on the day itself. <laughs> ah, well, you see, you have to have Valentine weekends now. Have you not heard the latest trend? You know, oh, so no. um, I'm away this weekend. Uh, so we'll, we'll have the dinner this weekend. I will have all of that wonderful, uh, shall we say, excitement and romantic, uh, shall we say, passings uh, over the weekend. So I'm still there. But I, I, I'm intrigued when I read this. I was I was laughing to myself because I walked into my local shop, the fingerboard. There you go. Now they get some advertising. But I walked into the fingerboard on Tuesday, Wednesday night, and I was joking with the owner there. I was saying, look at you, all his flowers were half price. Right, so all his Valentine's <laughs> ah, yes. were half price. So I was slagging him. I was saying, Jesus, is there nobody romantic and offering at all anymore when you're selling all these flowers and they're all still here? So um, whatever they're, whoever's doing the buying, they didn't do it in the fingerboard this year because they have loads of flowers. Well, on sale at half maybe price. they were just buying in advance because very often the forecourt purchase is the one you make at the last minute. Oh, this new way. So maybe we're actually considered and romantic. Yes, I'm just trying to avoid a legal letter from the fingerboard following your appearance. Oh, now, Kieran, uh, you may no. wish to dispute that awfully people are so romantic. Fly the flag for Westmead there. Fly the flag for Westmead, but well, you're talking to the wrong man, so if you're looking for romance, we'll so I'm afraid. Um, yeah, I suppose, look, it's, it's to spend, isn't it? Honest, what they're going on, so... Um, Zyler, foolish men down there, high maintenance, high maintenance women, one or the other. Will I don't know which oh, it is. Oh, 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 <laughs> oh, oh. The women of Westmead are a bit, bit easier, a bit more easier to please. I think you might get a few more legal challenges now. Will. <laughs> is that why you live in Westmead? Because women are easier to please. Yeah, exactly. Will yeah. Well, now, well, I'm, I'm from Wexford originally, and my wife is from Wexford originally, so um, that's a whole new story, that one. Well, I have a feeling after the last comment, you'll be going back to the southeast very soon. <laughs> I know, I stay in West Needham. I'm safe here. Yes, indeed, for now. <laughs> Irene, did you have a rosemantic Valentine's Day, or was it just another Monday? Uh, let's just keep it short and sweet. I think I need to move to Offaly or, or stick with the dogs, one or the other. <laughs> well, the dogs can be the most loyal of all, can't they? They can, definitely. Now, another story from the week centred around Prince Andrew and something of a surprise in that it was about 100 days ago or so that his team gave a staunch defence and suggested there was no substance to these allegations by Virginia Dufresne that he didn't even recall meeting her and well fast forward to Wednesday we learned of the payment believed to be in the region of 12 million pounds a settlement reached between the two sides possibly to spare of the royal family during what will be the Queen's Jubilee year have you been following this story uh, Irene and what do you make of the settlement I think it's wrong. I think no matter who he is, he should have to face up to whatever he did. And it's clear from plenty of um, 
pictures and stuff in the media that he definitely was with her. Um, obviously, nobody knows, only the two of them, what did actually happen. But the fact that he's making a settlement is fairly clear that he's somewhat guilty, I think, personally. It invites a question as well about the value of the royal family. And I know we're at a distance here, we're in a republic, but we always take an interest in what happens across the water. And there was an opinion piece, I think it was in The Telegraph, Kieran, about how many royal now on active duty and how many are not. So the Sussexes are over in California. Andrew is benched and for very good reason. Can you see this mushrooming? Uh, I don't think so. I, I think once he he's paid her off, basically, it's what he's done. That that could be the end of it, won't it? Um, obviously, it's a, it's a legal settlement that the bottom came to, an arrangement. And uh, for whatever happens, will we ever know? I, I don't think so. And your take on it, Michael, if you were a British taxpayer and the grant to the royal family getting bigger and bigger, would you want better value for your money? Yeah, and I suppose I, I'd be questioning the idea of accountability. I mean, we've, we've all come through this this kind of violence towards women recently, and we've all been, I suppose, actively participating and watching that. Um, and, you know, the various new, I suppose, reports you out in this country. And I suppose the accountability has gone there too for legal recourse by being able to pay it off. That's a bit unfortunate. So um, personally, I wouldn't have been in favour of what's happened. I mean, I think that um, the British taxpayer probably also uh, agreed that because I think that, I think we all know for society, as from a society perspective, we need to start to reflect uh, and figure out how we could go forward with this. And if people are enabled to buy their way out of these sort of issues, I think that uh, that's not going to rectify the problem that we have in society. So. I think it's a broader question there, and I think that maybe the accountability needs to be looked at. That's my own On question. a related story, you may have seen the article during the week from Scotland, where the transport minister there shared her own experiences of being on public transport, not particularly pleasant experiences, and she wants to create safe spaces for women on buses and on trains. And we had the debate here, and... I suppose there were many ways of looking at it, certainly perhaps the heart being in the right place, but there was a feeling even from Anne Clark of Offaly Domestic Violence Support Service that segregating people rather than addressing the underlying problem is not the answer. Irene, would you be in favour of female-only carriages on the train to Dublin, for instance? Um, I can see both sides of it. I think, you know, if you're a, a single lady and you need to go to Dublin late at night or whatever and you don't have somebody to accompany you, then for peace of mind, yeah, it would be a great idea. But I do think it's pretty sad that we would have to go down that road um, to segregate males and females. Uh, I just don't think it's right. I think there's a bigger, broader issue there, again, that needs to be sorted. Okay, Michael, your take on female-only carriages. Given discrimination laws, for instance, in Ireland, is it even a runner? Well, I, I suppose I wouldn't be too up-to-date on the discrimination laws, but, but I just think we got to go back to first principles, the foundations. Why is this happening, right? I mean, if we keep putting plasters on these things, we'll never resolve the, the fundamental issue is that, you know, we got to learn to live and respect each other, right, as different sexes. And we need to get this, this fear away from society. So if we put in separate carriages, uh, you know, yeah, it's a sticky plaster, but it's not going to address the fundamental problem. Right. And I, I'd much rather that females and males could sit on carriages and everybody would feel equally secure 
as they went on that journey. And I think we need to start putting the interventions to make sure that happens. Uh, and maybe this this separate carriage, I think, I'd be against it. I think that it's only going to further extend this issue we have. Um, and I think that's not that's not a positive. Kieran, two out of three panellists not in favour of the idea. Yeah. Are you any different? Yeah, I, I, I agree with, with Michael and Irene there as well. And maybe, I won't go over what they said again, but maybe just another another thing to maybe look at with it is maybe a transport police on trains and buses and stuff like that. Like I know the UK have, have one over there. Is it something that maybe the government needs to look at here? Is a transport police force there where they're on the trains and in the train stations like that as well? Because you could have a carriage for, say, segregated for women being on it, and then they, they get off of a train station and then some bad person then gets off the, off the same train station and they're walking out the train station they can do harm from that way. So I don't think it's going to really sort the problem, but maybe a transport police on it might just help women feel a bit more safer there on, on the train if, if that's what needs being. And I think it probably does. Kieran, who's Ger Lambert? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Who is Ger Lambert? Uh, Geraldine Lambert will be my wife. <laughs> yes. Well, whatever you said okay. triggered her to reply with a WhatsApp. And then, yeah. I think having counted to 10, she deleted it. So all I'm seeing here is this message was deleted, but I'd love to know what it originally said. Oh, and that I, I would now too. <laughs> I can tell you that Ina in Mullingar says it's a load of baloney about people in Offaly being more romantic. Buying flowers for Valentine's Day is no indication of romance. There are 364 other days in the year. On our Friday panel, uh, Kieran Lambert from Lambert's Pest Control in Mullingar. Michael Tobin from the Technical University of the Shannon. And Irene Gill from Husky Rescue Ireland. Yesterday was Random Act of Kindness Day. And a lovely text here to give credit where it is due from a listener who was in Samey Ladies in Harbour Place Shopping Centre in Mullingar and just found the people so nice and lovely to speak with. And also having gone into the Havana Sun Salon in Mullingar to get a gift for a birthday. I just found the staff to be so incredibly helpful. I'm not sure what her name was, but according to Liz, you did a fine job, whoever you are. So, always nice to get praise on text. And on WhatsApp then, from Mrs Lambert, Apparently that WhatsApp wasn't meant for us at all, Kieran. She said she would never say anything bad about you. You are a romantic old soul. I think emphasis on old. Yeah, I am slightly I nervous, though, because I am in the home studio, Casa Covid, unfortunately, and when you are in a regular studio, your wife just can't walk into the room, but she has decided to. I'm going to take over now. Everybody needs to know how romantic my husband is. He's just wow. so wonderful. On Valentine's Day, do you know what he gave me? Give me COVID. Thanks, Al. <laughs> Good man, I'll, I'll have you know, it did not come into the house from me. And besides, you were sick first. And can we please continue this after 12? <laughs> right. Um, Do you want to take focus. five minutes to, be able to sort that one out and myself and, and, and uh, Irene and Kieran will take over? No, no, no. It'll <laughs> only take about 20 seconds to sort out. <laughs> anyway, composure. 
the next story we'll move on to then, the apparent study in Texas, which suggests that the better looking you are, the more likely your immune system is to be strong. So in this uh, institute, they first of all ranked people based on their looks, and then they conducted blood tests to establish whether they had uh, strong immune responses, white blood cells, things of that nature, which fight off infection. And I'm just thinking of you, Michael, and you're doing all of your studies and all of your research in the Technological University of the Shannon. Do you think you can do better than that? Well, I suppose I'm wondering, could I validate it? I mean, I'm now here talking to you when you're at home with COVID. So you're sick and you've got the various, shall we say, problems. So is that saying something about you and your looks, Will? I'm not sure. Maybe the listeners can text you in and say, <laughs> do, you, do you agree or disagree? But uh, I'd refer... Well, I'd there refrain is a reason. There comment. is a reason I work on radio, Michael, and not TV. <laughs> I'll refrain from comment. Um, you know, it, it, look, at it, it's interesting in the humorous research. Um, but what they're... Yeah, what you've, you've kind of qualified what you're saying. Um, I've never actually studied that domain of looks and uh, your ability to be fit. But I'm sure there is something in it too. I mean, we all know ourselves... If you take looks out of it, I mean, that's what you get. God gives you. But um, if it's God you believe in. But if you take physical fitness, I think there's no doubt about that. That does enhance um, our ability to feel better in ourselves. So I think there probably is definitely something in, in the science there. Mm, well, yeah, that's interesting. So perhaps the connection between perceived good looks and physical fitness is actually confusing matters. It's the underlying physical fitness that may lead to the better immune system rather than necessarily whether you're an oil painting or not. Now, to determine beauty, because obviously beauty is in the eye of the beholder and it is subjective, they looked for features like bright eyes and symmetrical faces. Does that sound like a good test of beauty to you, Irene? No, definitely not. Um, from a, Not from a dog point of view, but from a fitness point of view, I had a gym of my own, and I think maybe the whole immune system boosting thing could be the fact that when people are into their fitness and they do um, have their six-pack and they do have their muscles or whatever, they get a lot of, for want of a better description, groupies, people you know, looking up to them, telling them how great they are. And obviously, if they tell them they're great and they're great looking, they're going to feel better about themselves, so their immune system will be boosted. Their ego will be boosted. Yes, I get what you're saying, absolutely. And then, Kieran, you prove this is a load of baloney because you're never sick. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah, so that's that theory gone out the water already. Well, yeah, so. <laughs> <laughs> I have no more comments on that one. <laughs> Oh, finally, yes, I, I, I stung you. You see, the other two panellists may not know this, and, and some listeners may not remember, but a few years ago, uh, Kieran arrived in studio, and what did you bring as a little gift? I uh, brought a little pet rat here, I brought in. Yes, yeah. you brought a live rat into the studio. Yeah, yeah. And then it's subsequently actually, you brought in a cake that was a rat, and you called it Will. I called him Will, and uh, a lady in Clara actually uh, took him off me, and she asked me, "Would they have a name on, name on the rat?" And I said, "Yes, his name was Will Faulkner." 
So yes. <laughs> well, I would like to offer you as a consolation prize an all expenses paid holiday, Kieran, for you and your good lady wife. Actually, no, just for you to Ukraine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a lovely country, actually. Now, Ukraine, I wouldn't mind going there. I'm sure it is, absolutely. I just might give it a pass for the next couple of weeks until we see what happens. It is uh, one of the items on the agenda, but unfortunately we're out of time. So before we wrap up, Irene, mindful of all the great work you do at Husky Rescue Ireland, if anybody wants to assist, how may they do so? They can go to our Facebook page or our website and all the information is there. But as usual, being a rescue, fundraising is a big deal for us. But the fact that we're in County Leash, if anybody feels like volunteering, anybody that's local, just get in touch with us and we'll send you out the proper application forms. It would be great. And thanks for having me on, Will. Not at all. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. And uh, Michael, I know we're fairly well into the uh, the academic year at this stage, but for people who are interested in exploring courses and opportunities and particularly lifelong learning at the Technological University of the Shannon, how can they find out more? Yeah, well, you can check our website, which is www.toost.ie, but we won't really have the, the September offering, I'd say, till about early April, the first week of April. Um, so in the interim, you can see what we had last year. 90% of what we had last year will be reflected again this year. And we've just submitted, actually only on Wednesday, we submitted again for another tranche of funding under the Springboard Initiative um, to have fund courses either funded 10% or indeed 100% free. So we've gone in for 2,000 places again, and that again across the entire university. So that's here's to us getting all that funding and to benefiting people's ability to go on to do further learning. And finally, to my sparring partner in chief Kieran Lambert of Lambert's Pest Control for anybody who may have pest problems and Mrs Faulkner excluded in this of course how can you be reached uh, yeah we're on Facebook uh, Lambert's Pest Control and actually we do a little range of, of hygiene supplies uh, as well Will and that's what, that's what we're called on Facebook now is Lambert's Pest Control and Hygiene Supplies and our hygiene supply range actually is uh, eco-friendly uh, like toilet roll, napkins, paper hand towels, uh, centre pull rolls, that sort of stuff. And it's actually made from recycled juice cartons. So there's no dyes, no chemicals, uh, nothing like that put into it as well. So it's pure uh, recycled paper is basically what it is. Guys, appreciate your time on the panel this morning. That's where we must leave it. My thanks also to Sinead Hubble, our producer, to the news team for assisting, for Adam Cunningham's time in pressing all the right buttons today. I'll chat to you on Monday morning from nine and I'll tell you who was caller of the day as well at that stage. Have a great weekend. Bye bye.